You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. True story that happened to me a few years ago. There were uh, uh, two religious Jews, very observant Jews, who heard something in the news that was said in, in the name of, of the anti-Zionists, and it disturbed them. It disturbed them that there was this group of anti-Zionist religious Jews who would say the statement that they said. So they came to me, these two individuals, and said, Rabbi, can you explain to us what's wrong with these people? That's basically how they said it to me. So I said to them, I said, I'll make with you a deal. I will tell you what the anti-Zionists believe, but I'm warning you that you're going to become an anti-Zionist. So I'll make a deal. If you accept that you're going to become an anti-Zionist, if you give me 90 minutes, I will explain to you um, the opinion of the anti-Zionists. And they laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed, like it was the funniest thing that they'd ever heard. And then we sat down, the three of us, for um, 90 minutes or so. It turned out to be a little longer. I explained to them, we went through the passages in the Talmud, which we're going to look at a little bit today. And after, at the end, they said, oh my goodness, you know, Zionism is a terrible thing. We have to stop all the Zionists. I said, there, you became an anti-Zionist. So they said, they said to me, I, I, I'm, I'm changing the words, but basically the idea, they said, turn us back. Turn us back. So I said, I said, listen, I warned you. I said, if you're going to learn this, this is what's going to happen. And they said, no, no, no. So um, I gave them some resources. Anyway, they're, they're now where they want to be. The, the point I'm making is I don't think anyone here is going to become an anti-Zionist, and, I, 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 and that, that isn't what we're trying to do. And again, we're trying to present both sides. They were only asking for one side. Uh, the, the point is, though, that this is a very, very sensitive, a very, a very delicate subject, and I think that um, it's also a subject that most people don't know the opposing opinion in both directions. Most people do not know. If you believe one way, you don't even know the other opinion. And if you believe the other way, you don't know the other opinion. And as we've said in class number one, that you're not truly um, entitled or even having an opinion unless you know what the other side is saying. But let me sum this up. And we're going to go from this, we're going to go into the subject itself with the following fact. I believe it's a fact, but um, I, I think it should straighten out everyone's view of this controversy. Number one, before we get into the specifics, the people who follow the tradition of Zionism and of um, promoting the state of Israel believe that the anti-Zionists don't love Eretz Yisrael. Let me say that again. The Zionists believe that the anti-Zionists do not love Eretz Yisrael. I think that everyone understands that, but now listen to this. 
The anti-Zionists also believe that the Zionists don't love Eretz Yisrael. So you've got two groups, each one believing that they love Eretz Yisrael and the other side does not. And it's interesting that neither side is aware, seemingly, that the other side believes that they are um, 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 the ones who love Eretz Yisrael and the other side isn't. So I, I want you to consider that when we think about, uh, again, this is not a promotion at all of any of the individual actions taken on by any side such as if someone doesn't believe in a certain movement, are they allowed to go to a foreign government and help them out in order to cause difficulties for the Jewish people elsewhere in the world? That, 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 we're not going there. We're not talking about that. We're only talking about the Torah perspective of the development of the land of Israel as seen, the state of Israel, as seen from the eyes of Rav Kook and the Satmar Rabbi. And now, let us begin. Okay. Yes, please. The people that you gave us the example, they have to believe in the halacha as Torah Misinai, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Both of them came from the same school of thought, that the halacha is God's word. Yes, I, I, I thank you very much for pointing that out, because I, I think it's important to say, say it just like that. We're not discussing here what the proper response to a Holocaust is. We're not talking about here about what the proper response to um, Jewish persecution and the development of a state for the state of security or for nationality. We're not going there, right? As you're pointing out, this is only a debate between two rabbis as to what does the Talmud say. And if you're not someone who believes that the Talmud is the authority, then the whole point is moot. Right? right? So this is all um, their debate over what it says in the Talmud, and that's what we're learning, obviously, for many people. Like I said, if we were to, to go to, um, to have votes in the state of Israel today, if we were to go to the state of Israel and have an election where every... Um, citizen of the state of Israel was to choose whether or not the Talmud was the authority, I don't think you would get a majority and you certainly wouldn't get a coalition, right? So, so um, th this is a, um, we're only speaking within the context of, of this Torah discussion, right? Okay. So there is a statement in the Talmud in Mesechet Ketubot 111a. You can look this up yourself. The Talmud there is discussing the concept of Jews moving to Israel before the coming of Mashiach, before the Ketz HaGeulah. Are Jews allowed to move to Israel and just to live there? So the Talmud quotes different opinions, different positions. According to some, it's a mitzvah. It is a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael, um, even today. There are others who disagree, back and forth. But here's where the Talmud says. If you look in Sefer Shir HaShirim, the Song of Songs, it says three times, Hishba'ati etchem benot Yerushalayim. It says three times, I exact an oath from you, O daughters of Yerushalayim. Says the Talmud, 
Gimel Shvuot Halalu Lama. What are these three oaths? Three Shvuot. Achat. Shvuot number one. Shelo Yalu Yisrael Bachoma. That the Jewish people cannot ascend to Eretz Yisrael. Bechoma. Now, the translation of Bechoma is going to be very tricky, but the simple reading is to ascend like a wall. What we would say in English, well, not English, but what we would say in mass, to ascend in large groups. Exactly how you define that, that's part of the debate. But Shavuah number one is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when he sent us into Galut, he sent the Navi and said to the Jewish people, Shelo Yalu Yisrael Bachoma. Achat number two. Shehishbiya HaKadosh Baruch Hu at Yisrael. Hashem took an oath from the Jewish people. Shelo Yimredu Ba'umot Ha'olam. That we may not rebel against the nations of the world. That means that while we are in Galut, we suffer, we run, we protect ourselves, but we don't rebel. That's interesting. It doesn't say we don't defend ourselves. Right? It says we don't rebel. Ve'achat, and Shvua number three, That Hashem then turns to the rest of the world and says, listen, I'm sending my children into Galut, into exile. Don't be overly cruel. Don't be too mean to them. Shelo yishtabdu Yisrael, now, those are three Shavuot. Number one, that the Jewish people cannot ascend to Eretz Yisrael in a mass. Number two, that we can't rebel against the nations of the world. And number three, that the nations of the world cannot treat us cruelly. So says the Rebbe Misatmar that any movement which involves the Jewish people coming into the land in large groups and developing their own state, which is a rebellion against the nations of the world. Now, obviously, there's, um, that needs clarification. Therefore, the Jewish people are in breach of the oath that they have taken from Hashem. It says in the Talmud that we are not allowed to. Now, what is the punishment if the Jewish people do this? What's the punishment of breaking this oath? Said the Rebbe Misatmer, and again, I'm just quoting what he says. This is not me. This is what he says. He says, keep reading in the Gemara, and this is what it says. Amar Rebbe Elazar. You see, it says in the Pasuk, Ishbati Atchem, Ishbati Atchem, Bitzvaot, Right? I, I, I'm taking an oath by, by, the, by the deer and, and the wild animals and the antelope of the field. I, I, do, you, do you know what that means? To take a shvuah, bitzvaot, oba'aylot hasadeh? What does it mean to take an oath by the antelope? Listen to this, because what the Satma Rebbe said is one of the scariest things you will ever hear. Amar Rabbi Elazar, Amar Lehem HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael, Hashem said to the Jewish people, Im Atem Mekaimin Et HaShivua Mutav. If you keep the Shivua, that's good. 
ve'im lav, and if you don't, ani matir et besarchem kitzvaot ve'ke'ailot hasadeh, you will be slaughtered like cattle. It is the only place in the entire Talmud, in the entire Midrash, in all of our sources, that says that if we do this, specifically, we will be slaughtered like cattle. Said the Rabbi Misamar, here you have the Zionist movement that's gaining power and gaining more power and more power. Then people started to ascend to Eretz Israel. The nations of the world were upset with this. The people who were living in the land were upset by it. And what happens is, they invoked, they went so far that they invoked this punishment, and that is what caused the Holocaust. Shocking. Now, why is Shiroshirim considered so important when it's really poetry, it's not like a, a book of laws, of instruction. Why is it so, you know, taken uh, seriously? Um, so, yeah, it's a yeah, fair question. Another thing, if I may say, the, uh, the Jews came to Israel and made a state after the Holocaust, not before the Holocaust. Right, so I, I, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break all this down. I'm not going to leave us hanging in this very uh, difficult place. We're going to go in the other direction. But, but, uh, but, uh, I also want to say, my grandfather, who was a franchise of the Ger um, group, the Ger Hasidim, he found that the Rabbi, Rabbi Shilgur, Migur, allowed singles to go to Israel. But when um, the grandfather of, of my, um, then my, my grandfather Rabbi Miyabloni that asked him to bring to Israel 600 families, he didn't agree. No. He said if he wants to socialize with Zionists, let's see what will happen from him. Anyway, he brought 600 families and saved their life, but probably... It's from the Talmud that he allowed singles and not groups, right. and not masses. Right, so, so you, you should know that, again, we're only focused on the Rabbi of Samar and Rav Kook, because I'm going to bring Rav Kook's um, view of all this in, in just a bit. In Gur, which is referred to as the Ger Hasidim, they have a whole system of their own, of how they understand all of this, and it's not in agreement with, with the Rabbi of Samar in many ways. So, so that's that's a whole a whole new set of opinions. Um, if we if we go in that direction, but I want to answer the two other points, and, and I think and I think what 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 Anat is raising is really related to the second point. Number one is that Shira Shirim is considered an authority because the Talmud is the one that derives from the verses. It's really the authority of the Talmud, and there are those who want to dismiss this section of the Talmud as agadaic and therefore not halachically authoritative. Um, but as we'll see, Rav Kook isn't going to read it that way. Rav Kook is going to explain that, no, this Talmud is describing how you should be connected. to. We'll, we'll get into that in, in just a bit. But in terms of the Holocaust, what, what the Satmar Rebbe is saying is that Zionism begins in the, in the, uh, in the 19th century. 
it's not the, 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 the fulfillment or the creation of the state of Israel according to the Satmar Rebbe that, that caused the Holocaust, but it's the a movement to create the state. And, and, and that, that once the Holocaust happened, at that point, um, it was just a way of securing what was already in place beforehand. But he's learning, the way he's understanding it, yeah, that's the, the Satmar Rebbe, the way he's understanding it is that the movement to bring about um, the state of Israel and the push that was happening for um, ever since, as you all know, ever since the, the, the Dreyfus um, scandal, where, where Herzl decided that the Jewish people are not going to be safe unless they have their, home, um, um, their own home. So he says from there it was already beginning, but then when it gained enough steam that it was truly a danger to the Jewish people, that's when the Holocaust happened. That, that's how he's reading it. Again, that's, that's, that's his view of things. How can how can somebody say that the beginning of Zionism created all of us? Are other authorities agrees with that? Anybody agrees with that? So, so and the, the thing is, uh, it's, he's learning that it's the Talmud that's saying that, because the way he's learning it, and we'll see. I haven't gotten to the other side yet for how the other side reads it. But the way he's reading this statement in the Talmud is that the Talmud is telling you that, the, that if you try to break the boundaries of Galut and try to create Geula before um, it's the time, before the time has come, then what you should... Ex- what to say Mashiach? They believe in the Mashiach. Well... Using the term Mashiach can get a little tricky because that itself needs its own definition, and that goes back to a previous class on how you define Mashiach. But yeah, we can say that. Until Mashiach comes, the Satmar Rebbe says, until Mashiach comes in the way that he understood Mashiach is coming. So he says, if you try to break the Shavuah before then, the Talmud says, Animatir et Besarachem Kitzvot Sadet, says in the Talmud that gonna be, we're going to be destroyed like cattle. He says it never happened in history that that, that that ever happened, that we were, we were destroyed. I mean, literally, they're called cattle cars, right? The, 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 what the Jewish people were shipped on. Okay, I want to stop. I want to go in the other direction because if I keep defending this side, I'm never going to get to read the other side. Excuse me for yes. a minute. I just want to ask you. Can you tell me where did this rabbi live? Where did he spend his uh, knowledge and everything? Where did he live? In Europe, in America, in Israel. So he lived in Europe, in what is um, the city of Satmar is the city in Romania called Satu Mare, and um, he he lived there until the Holocaust, and uh, during the Holocaust he escaped and made his way to the United States, and in the United States he built what is one of the greatest Jewish largest. Jewish institutions in America, the um, the Satmar Hasidim. Of course, since then they've had some own internal issues, and now they've broken themselves into branches. But uh, but he's still considered the spiritual leader of all all of those people, um, primarily in the New York State area, Williamsburg, um, Bar Park, and those places. Okay, says Rav Cook had a whole different view on these things. 
Now, they, they did live at about the same time, even though Rav Kook was about 20 years older than the Satmar Rebbe. But Rav Kook was born in 1865. The Satmar Rebbe was born in 1887. Of course, um, Rav Kook um, um, li- lives until 1935. The Satmar Rebbe, he passes away in 1979. So he, he's only uh, four decades ago. So Rav Kook said that the prohibition of Shloyalu Yisrael Bechoma means, what's Bechoma? It doesn't mean in large groups. Bechoma is a wall, which means by force. And number two, the second Shavuah is, Shloyimrdu Ba'umot Ha'olam, that the Jewish people should not rebel against the nations of the world. Said Rav Kook, that's not what we're trying to do. Now, it's, it's, he never got to see this, but what he was saying, we're going to the nations of the world, and we're saying to the nations of the world, we want a land. This is not rebellion against the nations of the world. There's a coalition of all the nations of the world. It's called the United Nations. And we are asking the United Nations to take a vote. To vote and to allow the Jewish people in cooperation with the world not in rebellion against the world in cooperation against the world uh, cooperation with the world to develop a state of Israel so he said how is this how is this a marida now the Satma Rabbi answered back this was his answer he said that it doesn't depend on the United Nations who gave the United Nations authority who said that the United Nations has this decision-making power? Now, you may say to me back, which is what the um, Zionists argued back to the Satmar Rebbe, they said, well, if not the United Nations, then whom? So said the Satmar Rebbe, you ready? You are not going to like this answer. You're not going to like this answer. The Palestinians, they said... Amazing, right, that he should say such a thing. But that's what he said. He said, when it says, it means you can't rebel against the nations whom you are living amongst. So if you are in Israel and you want to turn it into a state, said the Satmar Rebbe, you have to get permission from the people living on that place, and that would be the Palestinians. Said Rav Kook back, again, this is not in direct conversation, said Rav Kook back, that's ridiculous. Why should the Palestinians, just because they happen to have lived in the land, why should they be considered umot ha'olam? Um, so, I'm just breaking from what I'm saying here for a second. I'm saying here, what it comes down to, it's really fascinating, is that here you have, literally, the fate of the world. Right? The state of Israel is a major factor in the state of the world today, in many ways. Stability in the Middle East, uh, the, its alliances with, with, with the United States, its place as a central place in the world for um, development and, and, um, and technological advancements, all of that, and its, whatever its role is, comes down to these two rabbis sitting over a page of Gemara and arguing over how to translate it, how to read these words. And what comes out is one rabbi says, um, uh, let's use names, the Satma Rabbi says to Rav Kook, you are a kofer. 
you are a heretic because you are taking our oath and you are convincing the Jewish people to break it and so you are the destroyer of the Jewish people. And Rav Kook would say back to the Satmar Rebbe, you are stopping the Geula, you are stopping the safety of the Jewish people, you are stopping the next step in the advancement of the coming of Mashiach. So the, Rav Kook would say to the Satmar Rebbe, you are a kofar, you are a heretic, and you are destroying the Jewish people. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, when did the whole uh, argument okay, occur? When, when was it? What time? So this is at the beginning of the 20th century. So um, mostly when the major movements are happening, so the 1920s, 1930s, but, but this debate would continue because Rav Cook passes away, as I said, in 1935, but, but his students and his followers would take his place and then, and then the Satmar Rebbe would continue to, to battle it out with all of these, and he would be the, the leader of the movement. And uh, let me say this again in the most extreme terms, again, not my position, I'm just sharing with you. The Satmar Rebbe said that if the state of Israel would dissolve, Mashiach would come the next day. And Rav Kook would say that if the state of Israel would dissolve, the world would end. And well, basically what he's saying is, let me put it to you in, uh, in other terms. Uh, I, again, it's very hard for me to say this without giving an excuse every time, because these are such, such strong statements. You know, it's really, it's really painful to watch. And I, I'm sorry, I'm, before I answer your question... Um, you know, there are many debates. We've, we've done ten debates so far. But, you know, the first debate between Moshe and Aaron, you know, we say, right? Moshe and Aaron are seen as the two um, that's Moshe and Aaron. Even though they had a different view of the world, they loved each other. And as we move through the generations, you know, we saw this with Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Hillel and Shammai, they loved each other. And, and the Rambam and, and, and the Ravid, they also, they loved each other. They had respect, even though they used the heart. But as we move through the generations, this is a fight that went beyond. It went to a place where there was a... I want to use, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to use the word, but I just know that it's true, a hatred that developed, a sin'ah that developed between both sides because of how far and extreme these went. And you have to wonder, how could it be that such great people can get into such great battles? But if you think of it this way, and I'm going to give you what the Salman Rebbe said, what he said was like this. He said, six million Jews died. I don't care what horrible thing we did. We did not deserve for six million to die. It is the greatest tragedy in the world, in the history of humanity. Forget the, in, the, in the history of the Jewish people. It is the greatest tragedy. How could God allow it to happen? And he says you should know that that could not be followed by anything but Mashiach. 
When we talk about the Melchama of Gog and Magog, the war of Gog and Magog, he says that was it. And Mashiach was going to come immediately after that. And the only way that the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, the forces for evil, could stop Mashiach from coming and from bringing the Geula, was to convince the Jews to create their own Geula. Right? I have something. Yes. I have something to say. Uh, in the other side of the coin, uh, they will they will say, and I know it for for effect because I lost all my my grandparents. Uh, I never saw them. I never knew about them. Um, in the years of uh, 1910-2030. When the Jews want to go to Israel, the rabbis were saying, no, we'll wait for the Geula. If the Mashiach will come, then we'll go to Israel. And that's how so many people were dying in the Shoah. That's the reason, because the rabbis didn't let them come to Israel. Right. So the, the, the point that you're making, and that's a fair point, I, I want to differentiate, though, I'm not trying to defend anyone. Uh, the, the rabbis were wrong for telling people not to leave. I don't think anyone debates that. The question is why the rabbis were saying that. Right? So, um, rabbis can miscalculate. That's number one. Right? Rabbis are not the magical prophets. But, but besides that, there is a very difficult statement in the Talmud, in Masechet Gitin where the Talmud describes Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, you all know the story, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sneaks out of Yerushalayim to meet with the future emperor of Rome, Vespasian, to negotiate for him, and to negotiate with him for the Jewish people. And, he, um, and Vespasian says to him um, a number of things, and Yochanan ben Zakkai a few times gave the wrong answer. And the Talmud says, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh is the most brilliant person in the world at that time. How could he make such a mistake? And the Talmud says, because it tells us in the Torah, Meshiv Chachamim Achor, that sometimes God, God makes smart people stupid. Sometimes God makes smart people stupid because that's part of his plan. So that's number one. Number two is, again, it's all on how you read it. It's very easy to read it and to say that the reason why six million died was because they didn't go to Israel. The Satmar Rebbe argued, and I wasn't even going to bring this up because it's such an extreme argument and I'm trying to at least you know, contain it on some level, but he suggested that if the Jewish people, if nobody would have gone to Israel, then the Holocaust wouldn't have happened at all. I, I see the face you're making and that's probably the face that would how be made by anyone who's not one of his students. Uh, but right? tell me, how does he know? Is it a prediction? Is it something that was written? This is, this, is, this is the Talmud, right? So he is, he is reading and understanding it based on his position as an authority in the interpretation of the Talmud. So, and... I, again, I, these, are, these are the opinions of other people. But, but you have to remember, maybe I should have started with this. Rav Kook and the Satmar Rebbe, both of them, are in their generations in the handful of scholars who know the entire Torah. 
In every generation, there's a few scholars, obviously there's a lot of great Torah teachers, a lot of people who know a lot, but then there's a handful of people in every generation who are the top. And they are the ones who would be making the decisions. At least in theory, it should be that the ones at the top are the ones who have all the knowledge. Sometimes it happens that other people, you all know how politics works. But, but in theory at least, and it's amazing, it's incredible to see here you have two of these um, great rabbis, and not just opposing opinions, and not, not just a disagreement, but extreme to extreme. Mi katzel katzel, mamash, right? How can you explain that there is a big kehillah of Satmars in Israel now? Oh, very good. Okay, so um, the question is, if the Satmar Hasidim believe that, why are they living in Israel? So they don't believe there's anything wrong with living in Israel. Because the land has always had Jews on it. Even when we were kicked out of Jerusalem, you know, 1500 years ago, in the rest of Eretz Israel. Now when the Ramban arrives, he says he could barely find a minion in Yerushalayim. That's all the way back 800 years ago. But then as you move through time, Jews are always moving there. The Arizal, the Bet Yosef, Right? Many great rabbis lived in Israel. But what they didn't do is create a state. So what the Satmar Rebbe instructed his followers to do, hear me out, because you may be surprised to hear this, is to live in there without recognizing the state. So they don't use the government sanitation. They don't use the government services. They purchase, the, they purchase their land from Arab owners who sell it to them and they don't interact. They, obviously, they don't vote. They don't use anything associated with the government so that they are then allowed to live there. Again, I'm not defending. I'm just telling you what their, their position is. In this case, they don't live in the state of Israel. They live in the place which is Eretz Yisrael. I'm curious. It has nothing to do with that, but they do not speak, uh, they speak only Yiddish. They will not speak Hebrew. Why? They are. They are speaking Hebrew. No, the, not the, really. The Samar Hasidim don't speak Hebrew. And uh, this gets into another complicated subject, which is related to this. I don't have time to get into it fully, but it goes like this. Part of the debate between the Satmar Rebbe and Rav Kook, and again, I'm going to say this again. There are other opinions in this discussion, just between these two rabbis. The, the, um, the part of the debate is, can you have Mashiach come through a group of um, non-religious, um, secular-minded people who have no connection to Torah and no connection to God, can you have the Geula come through such people? In other words, were, um, can it be that through a person like Theodore Herzl, that through him there should be the Geula? For example, those who follow Rav Kook, when they say the Tefillah for the Medina, they call it Reshit Tzmichat Geulatenu. You've all heard this term, right? What does that mean, Reshit Tzmichat Geulatenu? It means this is not the Geula. 
But this is the process for how we will come to the Geula. This is the beginning of the Tzmicha of the Geula. And so, for example, Yom HaTzma'ut would be a day to celebrate the initiation of the Tzmicha of the Geula, which, according to the followers of Rav Kook, if all the Jewish people would accept this as a phenomenon of the Jewish people, and everyone would buy into and accept this as the Geula, then all the Jews will move to Israel, Israel will become the greatest place in the world, and they will promote peace in the world, and then Mashiach will come, and everything will be wonderful. That's what the followers of Rav Kook say. That if more people would embrace and accept, because that's the power of the Jewish people, we make a decision and we decide what should happen in the world. But part of what the Samar Rebbe was saying is that who, who developed this? Who developed this? You know, when we talk about who brought us out the first time, by the Geula of Mitzrayim, it was Moshe. By the Geula from Babel, it was, it was Ezra. The Geula from Paras Umadai, Mordechai and Esther. The Geula from Yavan, um, Matis Yahu and Yehuda Maccabee. And then the Geula from, from uh, Galut Acharon, Herzl. Lomatim, it doesn't fit. So that's what the Samar Rebbe said. Where is, where is your spiritual authority? How do we have redemption without it? So what the Samar Rebbe was saying, and this I is going back. I just wanted to say something horrible. How come the Rebbe Satmur escaped and let all of his Kehila and families Die in the Holocaust. Yeah, I, I mean, this question, you know, I, I'd like to address that, even though it's not really our subject. You know, one of the things about the Satmar Rebbe that most people find so offensive is the fact that not only did he escape the Holocaust himself, but special arrangements were made for him, for him to be able to escape, and these were arrangements that were not provided to the people who he told to stay. Right? I, 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 that, is a, that is a very serious accusation that has been addressed by his followers, but n- I don't think that it's been addressed in a way that is satisfying to anyone else, because we generally tend to follow the approach of the captain goes down with the ship, because without that, you know, part of being a leader is the Messiah at Nefesh for, however... They have their answers. I'm not going to share their answers because I don't think we need to necessarily um, give every explanation that everyone gives for their actions because this is a really good question and I think the question is going to be better and stronger than any of the answers that they're going to give which is if you really are the leader then how did you go through all these steps? It's a fair question. Again, it could be answered but I'm not going to try because... We're not putting his personality on trial or the personality of his leaders, uh, of the people beneath him who made all these arrangements. We're only discussing his Torah view, which is what his followers follow, even though there is this really big question hanging on him, which is how does he explain his behavior in the Holocaust? So I, I want that we should kind of remain with that question on some level, 
to, to feel, um, which, which causes people to feel angry at him, because you know what, we can still understand his opinion, even if we think that what was done, and it may not have been his decision, but, but even if it was, even if it was his decision, it, it's still something that we have to recognize um, that his position or his interpretation of these passages in the Talmud is not necessarily dependent on, on what his choices were in terms of the Holocaust. But, so I, I'm, I'm accepting your question and leaving it there. Okay, um, but, but I, but I want to go back to, to the question that was asked before. So in terms of the issue of speaking Hebrew, I think it's going to come down to really the same question. Because the Samar Rebbe said that this development of the state of Israel is all a process by which this power of evil can stop the Geula. In other words, after the Holocaust, Mashiach was going to come. And then by the development of the state of Israel, that was the only way that the powers for evil, the Sitra Achra, the other side, the Yetzirah, could stop the Geula. So what they needed to do was not just to develop a state, but to develop a state and give it as much of a fake Jewish identity as possible. Not my words. These are their words. Please understand. He said that they have to give it enough of a fake Jewish identity in order to allow it to be Jewish enough that it would stop the Geula. And one of the things which they did was they developed this new form of Lashon HaKodesh called Hebrew. It's not Lashon HaKodesh, which is Biblical Hebrew. It's this new language of Hebrew, which is to bring the holy tongue and to poison it and to drag down the holiness of the Jewish people. Again, these are, these are his views. What he's learning is that the modern language of Hebrew is a way for the Zionists to lock Judaism into the state of Israel as it is today and to stop Israel from ever turning into a truly Jewish state. And therefore he said, speaking Hebrew, and maybe I should not have said this in Hebrew, <laughs> but uh, it's a little bit too ironic. Why? Because if you do Avodazar, you did a sin. But this, you're holding down all of Judaism. And that's, and, and someone asked me for my opinion. Clearly, since I said that in Hebrew, I'm not accepting that ruling, right? So, but, but, but this was the way that he saw things. And he spoke about this. And you have to remember, and I'll say it again, he is a very, very, very big Talmid Chacham in terms of his knowledge of Torah. We could spend, we could tell stories all day of how brilliant he was. But because the more brilliant someone is, especially with that level of knowledge of Torah, it's very dangerous because such a person is very powerful and he was a great speaker. And he had thousands and thousands of followers. And you have to remember this is someone who lost everything at the, during the war and regardless of how he personally escaped, he came back to... Um, but saved his life. Yes. Very important. Yes. Yes. And he came to America and rebuilt an entire community. So we're talking about someone with great strength. But I, I don't want to sp spend all the class was, on the... What was his name? Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum. Teitelbaum. Yeah.
So the Tatmers are going to uh, a, to Ukraine for the uh, Satmar. Uh, so that's his name, uh, and all of them are going to um, to Ukraine to uh, visit his grave. What was his name? It's not the Satmars. No, Please don't say all of them. Only some people are following whoever it is. There's not every time everybody. And the person that you're looking for is Rabbi Nachman Mibraslav. Right, right. So, so Satmar and Breslov are two two different groups. Oh, I, right. I thought it's the same group. I didn't know. Yeah, it's, it's, there, are, there are groups of Hasidim who travel to Europe to visit grave sites, especially amongst the Samar Hasidim. But specifically, the majority of the Samar Hasidim are centered in, in the New York area in the United States. Oh, I but, but, but I, I want to go in the other direction, and I want to talk about Rav Kook, because I know Rav, the Samar Rebbe, he's the position that's a little bit harder to defend, and, uh, and I, I think that's the one that we have the most strongest feelings about. But we can't spend, we can't also not give Rav Cook his time, which is that Rav Cook was also one of the great leaders of the Jewish people. Rav Cook was a student of the Velazhin Yeshiva, so he wasn't someone who was, you know, Velazhin was the greatest of the Yeshivot, as we discussed in the previous class, and he was, you know, there were many Hasidic rabbis who, when they, when they when they heard what the Samar Rebbe was saying about Rav Kook, um, they, 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 they thought Rav Kook was going to be like this um, terrible person, and, and they went to visit him, and they're like, wow, this is someone who knows the whole Torah. This is a big, big Tamil Chacham, a big Tzaddik, but Rav Kook was also someone who was very, very emotionally connected to his Judaism. That means that for him, the feelings of, of Gu'ula, the feelings of Cherut, the feelings of when we just came out of the Yom Tov of Pesach, where we talk about the concept of Mishibud L'Gu'ula, where, where we, we understand that it's much more a state of mind than it is a physical experience. Rav Kook had his sources, and uh, we don't have... Um, we don't have enough time to go into into all of his sources, but but Rav, um, um, uh, only as much as we see in this Gemara. But Rav Cook said it's a miracle. We know that Esav sone et Yaakov. Now, that, does that sound like a horrible thing to say? Well, maybe. But think about what happened the last two thousand years. Think about what happened the last two thousand years. They've been killing us. In omdim alenu Now listen to this argument from Rav Cook. Now this is from Rav Cook from his followers. We're blaming it all on Rav Cook. He's the figure for this side. He said, "How could it be that Rov Umot Haolam took a vote in 1947, and they said that they accept the state of Israel?" How could that happen? Now, you could argue that it was the guilt of the Holocaust, but nevertheless, if you hate somebody, you hate somebody. How did they do it? He said, if that's not Nisim Min then what is? Yeah. Said the Samarebi back, 
No, that's not Maase Nisim. That's what we call Maase Yetzer. That's the evil inclination. That's the forces for evil, the Sitra Achra. But Rav Kook, in this case, I think you'll all agree, has the easier argument to make. And then, you know what happened? In 1948, when is, uh, uh, the state of Israel declared itself independent, you know what happened? All the nations around Israel declared war on Israel. And all the experts in the world said, that's it. Israel is the shortest experiment of any land in the world. And the Jews won the war. And then what happened? Every ten years, you all know the stories, every ten years the nations of the world around uh, Israel gang up on Israel. And you know what? The more religious... Um, the, the approach, right, 1967, right, the, the greater the miracles. What happened after 67, as, as, uh, as um, um, you know, all the great rabbis said, I, I heard this from Rabbi Amar, who heard this from Rabbi Ovadia, who said that um, after, after, after what happened in the 60s, and the people went from Yisrael B'tach B'Hashem to Kochiva Otsem Yadi, that the state of Israel became a lot more about its pride and its power, and that's why Yom Kippur happened. So the students of, of Rav Kook said that you see from this that the state of Israel, the more religious it is, the more miracles happen, and the more siyata dishmaya, as we say, divine support is given. And that's a proof that this is reishit tzimichat ge'ulatena. There's one other point I want to put in, and this is very, very important. There is a third shavua. The third shavua is shelo yishtabdu bahem Yisrael yoter midai that there is a, the third Shavua is that the nations of the world should not overly mistreat the Jewish people. So say the students of Rav Kook, after the Holocaust, the nations of the world have broken their end of the bargain. And if the nations of the world have broken their end of the bargain, and they did cause a Holocaust, we are entitled to say to Hashem, Maspik, Ad Matai, Anachnu Lo Mekablim, Od. And what, what Rav Kook, in a sense, is saying is that part of the redemption, now hear, me, hear this out, because this is very deep, part of the Geula is for the Jewish people to say, Daikvar, Maspik, enough. We've, at the Holocaust, Zehu, we will not have this happen. You want to put us into Galut? Listen, we ran from this country to this country to this country to that country. Okay, fine. We picked up our stuff, we went from, from, um, from uh, Israel to, to, to Spain, to France, to Germany, to Poland, to Hungary, to Austria, to Italy, to Switzerland, to England, to America, to Peru, to Argentina, to Cuba, to Australia. We went everywhere. But come on, enough already. A Holocaust? That's it. We're calling it. The, the Gola is ended. And Rav Cook felt that this kind of feeling, or this is the way his students develop it, and that's why um, great rabbis like Rabbi Yosher Ber Soloveitchik, even though he was raised in an anti-Zionist um, community, he, um, which was the Lithuanian yeshiva world, even though he was raised, in, he would later turn into one of the greatest 
uh, of the supporters of the Zionist movement because he felt like the world itself was calling on the return of the Jewish people to the state of Israel and that the state of Israel is a way for us to bring a fixing to the world and we don't need Mashiach to come mamash with a, with a chamor and he said it's, this is the kol do dido fake he said this is God knocking on our doors telling us to come meanwhile the Satmar Rebbe said this is not God knocking on your doors this is the Yitzhah knocking on your doors but what's interesting is that it all comes down to, and I, have to, I know I have to end this here, and I hope I've uh, properly given a perspective on both sides, even though I may have gone a little extreme with each of the sides, and I apologize for that. But what it comes down to, and this we should all remember, is that we have two rabbis here, both of whom are not trying to hurt anyone. They're not trying to hurt anyone. We have two rabbis here who believe that they are interpreting the Talmud in order to provide guidance for the Jewish people on how to live a life. These two rabbis have opposing opinions as to how to read these pages in the Talmud, but they're both simply trying to interpret the message of what God taught His um, people through the Tanakh and through the Torah and they're trying to relay that information to us. And sometimes that can become a very, very heavy and difficult discussion which the entire world can depend upon. The identity of the Jewish people can depend upon. But um, for us, we have to know that regardless of whatever side you're on, Jews believe that there are Everyone's entitled, those who, are, um, um, who know their stuff, can look at it and give their interpretation, and then there's a process by we, how we rule things. Uh, we learned a number of weeks ago about the attempt to bring back the Sanhedrin. You know, if we would have the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin would be able to make the decision for us. But we don't have the Sanhedrin, so what we are left with is Machlokot. And I know we're going to start a new series of Machlokot, but I think this is a powerful way to end series number one, because this is a Machlokot where everyone who's involved is so fired up that they're completely outraged at the other side. And I don't know if that's the right approach, meaning... Even if, if, if one side is true or the other side is true, I don't know if it's necessary for either side to develop such animosity and contempt for the other side. And I think that if each side would just take a few minutes and understand what the other side is saying, even if you disagree with them, if we could just lower the temperature of the anger to some degree, I think, and here's my opinion, that if we would get along better, then that would be quicker in bringing the Geula than any of the other choices suggested by any of the uh, rabbis. I'm going to leave it here. I'm open to any further questions. Our nature, since Abraham Avinu, that came to the land, he came to the land and he went to Egypt. And then after the first temple, the majority of the Jews did not live in Israel. The majority of the Jews lived around Israel. By our nature, I think that we have always in our heart two countries, two things. When they come back from, they, when they came back from Babel, only the poor people came back. 
the rich people stayed in Babel. It's something about the Jews that it's very challenging, very intellectual, very worldly, very living in both worlds. We have a state now, and even in the state, we have people that they are in the ends of the of, of the argument. And in one way, it's destroying, in the other hand, it's enriching. And now we are living in a place that, I think intellectually, we are living in a place that it's very challenging building a country because it's a process. It's still a process and probably it's always going to be a process that how the country is going to be developed. That's my opinion. And it's, it's very tough. Am yes. I going to say something that you're not going to like it? A country should not be a religious country in this day. And, uh, this day. It should be a secular country. That, it's a democracy gives, that gives the room to religious people to practice their religion. But not the religion should control the country. Well, let's... Uh, between state and religion, and that's, I think, it's the main problem between the between the Satmar and Harav Kook. Well, let me let me let me address that directly. I, I think that what you're raising up is a separate issue, and maybe we need a separate class on that. But remember, in the days of the Tanakh, there there was the Navi, the Kohen Gadol, and the Melech. Right? They're separate people. And they're not debating. No one's saying that the chief rabbi should be the prime minister. Right? I don't think anybody uh, wants to be the prime minister right now, um, you know, other than the people who are up there and let them fight over it. Right, right. right. But, but the point, the, the thing is, we're not talking about developing a religious country as much as we're talking about a country developed by the religious, and that's very different. Right? What, when we're talking about a land built by Mashiach, we don't mean that Mashiach is going to um, um, you know, execute anyone who's Oved Avodazara. What we mean is that the country is going to be d- built around Torah observance, so that, uh, you know, etc., etc. But your point is still, all, all those points are well made, what so I, I accept that. What, what, what Rachel means is that, that the religious should not be part of the government, should not be, be a, a party, but, the, but this is what she means about, about, uh, about the religious in Israel. In the United States, we don't have a, a religious party that is part of the, of the uh, government. Well, it, the thing is that... The I, I want to add a sentence. I think this was a fascinating discussion about a topic that was not really known to us and yes. we presented it in a very balanced way. I'm going to keep looking. I'm googling UL title Baum. <laughs> I'm going to research. That's very interesting. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. It comes for for sure that we are here. We are we have Medinat Israel because because of our history. We didn't come from nothing, from our religion, from our history, but could not be a stagnation in one place. It should be developed to the 21st century. And Teitelbaum, he could be very, very learned and very smart, but things have to go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I think that I, I think the point you're making, which is that whenever and however. 
there's going to be a completion of a geula, according to everybody, I think your point requires analysis on its own, is how does a future state of Israel, with or without Mashiach, how does it properly balance the state of religious Jews? Exactly. Because... Because other countries, I don't think the United States is a fair example, because Christianity, other than the questions of abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, and some minor factors like that, generally, there is no conflict between the state, of the, between the state and the religious beliefs of the individuals. Again, uh, with, with exceptions such as abortion and, and things like that. But with Judaism, you know, do the buses run on Shabbat? Right? That, that, that's a big deal. That's a big question on how you build your country around such basic elements of Jewish observance. I, I do think, though, that that has to be a separate subject on its own, independent from whether the country itself is recognized. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.